0: Thank you, Mark. Let me add one notice uh, for you this week. Uh, Tomorrow evening, that is Monday the 12th of December, we have our annual flyering of the local area. This is something that we do in conjunction with the other evangelical churches in the area. And if you are free tomorrow evening to, to help to deliver flyers, these are flyers that let the community know the services that are on over the Christmas period in the local evangelical churches. So if you're able to be there at quarter past five, you would get something to eat. It's at the Methodist Church on Crown Terrace. You'd be very welcome. But if you can't get there as early as that, don't despair. Uh, the group don't start flyering until after six. So just head on down there when you can. If you're able to go and you're keen to go, could you either get in touch with Sally or could you speak to me after the service just so we can let the organizers know uh, what sort of numbers to expect? Uh, so, to our message tonight, uh, we are in the midst of a Bible overview. We're trying to, to give the main message of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation. And one of the things that we set forth in advertising, if that's the right word to use, this series, was that we were going to help uh, each other see how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. And tonight, we come to that problem because we come into the Gospels. Uh, Over the last six weeks in the Old Testament, we have seen the storyline of the Bible. We've pointed to the repeated patterns of God's activity. And uh, one of the trajectories that we've uh, tried to follow is this definition of the kingdom of God being one of the main themes that we can trace throughout the scriptures. And uh, the times I've spoken anyway, we've borrowed this definition, which Andrew's going to put up for us. The kingdom of God uh, is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And what we've seen as we've worked through the Old Testament is that Uh, we see this appearing in different ways. Uh, So, for example, uh, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we're in the Garden of Eden, and we see God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place in the Garden of Eden, and they're under God's rule, which is God's word and uh, the projectionist has jumped the gun on me here. Here's a, a, an outline, a very simplistic outline of some of the things that we've seen. Um, we then saw after the fall that Abraham is called, and there are promises made to Abraham and his descendants that uh, the people are now Abraham's seed. And you could have followed this a few ways. You have... Uh, things promised to abraham you have uh, the, the israelites under moses you have the israelites under david but in general we see abraham's seed promised to be in the promised land in canaan uh, and as, as the story developed, we saw that uh, not only was it a land, but there was a city of Jerusalem. There was a temple that was built, which was the dwelling place of God. And the rule by which they were to live and by which they would know the blessings of God was by the covenants that God had given. The covenant promised to Abraham. The covenant given at Mount Sinai. The covenant promised to King David. And then as we worked through the prophets Again and again, the prophets looking forward to a day of restoration for Israel, they keep pointing to a remnant of God's people who will be brought back to the restored land, to the restored Jerusalem, to a restored temple. And the rule by which they will live is something that was promised as being a new covenant. And we're going to come to discuss some of that later on. And some people, a small number, relatively small number of Jews did return after the exile back to the promised land and um, they did build the city again. They did build a temple. But their experience of life in the land was nothing at all like that which was prophesied. They did not regain their independence, for example. The temple was not this glorious thing that they had anticipated. In fact, the older generation wept when they saw what this new temple was going to look like because when they'd seen the old one this was quite miserable in comparison and it's pretty much there in terms of the story of the old testament that the story ended so what comes next and crucially how does it relate well what comes next is the gospel and to to start off here i want to turn to the opening words of mark's gospel Mark's gospel, Um, just the, the, the first verse. Mark opens like this, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel means good news. And I'm sure for most of us, it's the part of the biblical story that we're most familiar with. But in a certain sense, I found that it's often the part that a lot of Christians are most confused about. Often I'll ask prospective members what their understanding of the gospel is. And the answers that sometimes come back, they they usually contain truth. I'm not not being uh, totally derogatory here. But they can often not really be what we would describe as the the gospel. Uh, So sometimes you get a very abstract thing and say, well, the gospel is love. Well, that's not actually a definition of the gospel. We can do much, much better than that. Mark's opening words in his gospel account are very helpful to us because he tells us that the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news about what God has done, what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. And we have four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all written from a slightly different perspective, looking to draw out different aspects of the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Different things are emphasized in the different Gospels. And this is one of the the really enriching things about reading the Gospels and comparing the Gospels and saying... Why has has this gospel writer put these things next to each other? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire John not to include this or to include that? At this time of year, of course, we particularly remember um, the part of the gospel story, which is the incarnation. It's remarkable that the gospel story begins with, An insignificant young girl in a despised region of her nation, in the region of Galilee. And she receives the word from God that she's going to have a child, that the Holy Spirit is going to conceive in her womb a son. This is what she's told He will be great and will be called the son of the most high the lord will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever his kingdom will never end and we heard um, on those verses this morning didn't we this is a child like no other this is god taking upon himself human nature human flesh and blood literally this is god with us He is to be given the name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. This is is a a non-negotiable part of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. That he came, this is God, come as a man, born of a virgin. And as I said, with varying emphases, the gospel writers present Jesus as the one who has absolute authority. Whether it be authority over Sickness, authority over evil spirits, authority over the natural word he 's the one who speaks, and the wind and the waves obey him. He has authority to teach he has authority to forgive sins and it 's these miracles that accompany his ministry that that confirm for us he has the authority in all of these areas Jesus teaches especially in Matthew's gospel, incidentally, about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And he reveals that it is the opposite of what many in his day were expecting. First century Jews in the main looked at the prophecies of the Old Testament and they eagerly anticipated that it would mean a restoration to the glory days. Those times when Solomon Uh, had all of the wealth in Israel and all of the extent of their land. This is what they were looking for. In Jesus' day, they are under the Roman yoke. They do not have sovereignty. They do not have any means of attaining it. They are just waiting for God to again throw off the shackles of their oppressors and, to borrow a recent political phrase, to make Israel great again. Well, Jesus brings a very different perspective he comes and he says things like this. Uh, My kingdom is not of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places in the kingdom of God. The last will be first and the first will be last. This was all Utterly counter to their expectations. But most shocking of all, and especially to those who started to see that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, was how this mission ended. Not with a coronation, not with an enthronement of this king, but rather with, well, a coronation of sorts, a coronation with a crown of thorns. Instead, it ended with him facing the mock worship of his Roman executioners. Instead, it ended with him being exalted, but nailed to a wooden cross. It ended with him bleeding and dying, just like an ordinary criminal. And so when all of this took place, there's a sense in which Jesus' disciples ask the same question that we're asking ourselves tonight. How does all of this fit with what God revealed to us in the Old Testament? How does it fit? It seems to be so utterly out of sync. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. The scene here is that it's uh, after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Two of his disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus. They are utterly dejected. Jesus comes alongside and he starts a conversation with them. He asks, what are you talking about? And they explain about Jesus of Nazareth, his qualities, his unfortunate end. And they say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then I'm going to pick up in verse 25. These words are on the screen. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What an amazing walk that would have been to to listen into. As I've heard somebody once put it, it's it's a walk through the Bible by the author of the Bible. But what's so revealing and so very important that Jesus reveals to us here is that it's just the nature of the continuity between Old Testament and New. It's very easy for us to think of portions of the Old Testament that speak about the Messiah. Um, Say, we could take a verse in Genesis 3. We could take Psalm 22. We could powerfully take Isaiah 53. And these are explicit references to the coming Messiah. But what we find here is that the connection between the Old Testament and the New is much deeper than just a few verses here and there that speak about the Messiah. It's not that some speak about Christ. It's that the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to him. The Old Testament in its entirety is leading us to this man. And he is the one who fulfills all that revelation. And who gives it meaning. Let me give you another example. In Acts chapter 13. It's the very early days of the first overseas mission. Uh, Paul is in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, He has therefore a Jewish audience in front of him. And he recounts for them the history of God's people from the Exodus from Egypt. To the promises that were made to King David. He does a Bible overview in a few verses. I don't know why we took so many weeks to get through all this. Um, But when he comes to speak about Jesus Christ, uh, great David's greater son, to speak about his death and resurrection, look at how Paul starts to sum this up from verse 32 of Acts 13. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers... He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. Everything that had been promised to the fathers has been fulfilled for us because Jesus has been raised from the dead. For Paul, Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. This is more than saying that Jesus Christ is the end of the story. It's more than saying he's the high point of the story of the Bible. It's to see that actually if you are going to understand anything of the Holy Scriptures, it's only when you see that Jesus Christ is the lens through which it all becomes clear. He is the only key to interpreting God's revelation to us in the Bible. And this is a challenge to us because it is so easy for us to think that once we've got the basics of, of Christian, uh, of, of the gospel, of some Christian theology, that we think that we can move on to deeper things. And that that means moving away to think of the things which are, are, are other than Christ. We, we, we know the contents of the gospel. We've got a good understanding of justification by faith. But what about for me to plumb the depths of theology in the Old Testament? If at any point we are tempted to be plunging the depths of theology, which does not have Christ as its centerpiece, then we've missed the point. We're actually trying to plumb the depths of scripture without having the only searchlight that will illuminate it for us. Christ is the center. Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Now, I want to show you this in a few different ways. Uh, And I am confident that this is going to whet your appetite to search the Scriptures some more and see Jesus Christ as the focus of the whole Bible. And I want to do this by holding to that definition of the kingdom of God that I mentioned at the start God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Um, first of all, God's people. Jesus is presented to us in the Gospels as, first of all, the descendant of Adam. You'd find that in Luke's genealogy, I think it's Luke 3. He's described for us as being the descendant of Abraham. You'd find that uh, also in Luke's genealogy, but in Matthew 1 as well. He's also the descendant of David. But more than just having the right genealogy, the Lord Jesus is the one who overcomes where all of these individuals failed. For example... The temptation of Christ. And we mentioned this when we were we were looking at our studies in, in Genesis chapter 3. Um, you would find this, for example, in Mark chapter 1. It sees Satan come and test the Lord Jesus. But at every point of temptation, the Lord Jesus does what Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden. He depends upon and he is obedient to the word of God. Satan does not overcome him. Moreover, the passages uh, that the Lord quotes when he wards off Satan, they're all from the book of Deuteronomy. And they're all um, found in that time where Israel is wandering in the wilderness, facing temptation and being overcome by temptation. But the Lord Jesus demonstrates, he's presented to us here as the one who overcomes, where all of these characters failed. And it leads me to, to make a point about just how this relationship to the Old Testament is presented to us in the Gospels. Let's go to Matthew 2, Matthew chapter 2. And again, we're, we're in the Christmas narrative, so um, the Christmas carols are not out of place at all, Mark, fear not. In Matthew 2, you have the story of the wise men. They come to visit the child Jesus. They saw the star in the sky, and it indicated that the king king of the Jews had been born. So naturally enough, they make the journey. They want to pay some homage to him. And they arrive at the royal palace, and they ask King Herod, We've seen the star. Where is the new prince? Herod is a little bit disturbed by this. Possibly a rival to the throne has come into the nation So he asks these wise men, when you find him, tell me about him. I want to go and worship him. Whilst, of course, his real motive is to destroy this new king. They're alerted to the danger. They don't go back and tell King Herod. And let's pick up the story after the wise men leave uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. This is verse 13 of Matthew 2. When they had gone... Matthew, uh, more than any of the other gospel writers, directly quotes from Old Testament scripture to set the context of who Jesus of Nazareth is. And this very seasonal passage helps us to see what Matthew has in mind. That quotation in verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son, is taken from Hosea chapter 11. Let me encourage you to turn there. We'll see something which I find very interesting. Hosea 11, and the first couple of verses of the chapter. I know Hosea is a difficult book, so we'll just to find. So we'll just pause for a moment. Okay, Hosea 11, 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the farther they went from me. They sacrificed to the bales and they burned incense to images. Now, if I was to ask you, what is that passage about in Hosea 11? I think you would say God is speaking through the prophet Hosea and he is describing his experience with his people. That uh, he's recounting how he loved his people Israel how he even called them out of Egypt, but regardless of how intensely he called them, they kept falling away. They kept falling into idolatry. We wouldn't, as we look at this passage, find anything complicated. We wouldn't be inclined to say, yes, this is definitely a messianic prophecy here, because evidently it's about Israel. So then you're left with the question, why has Matthew quoted it in Matthew 2? Did he just get out the concordance, look for the word Egypt, and thought, this is a pretty good parallel, let's just put that in? I really don't think so. This, in Hosea 11, is a description of where Israel failed. God called them, and regardless of how often he called them, they fell away. What Matthew presents to us is that Jesus overcomes. Jesus fulfills where Israel had failed. He's called out of Egypt. And, and you can think of this. Israel's called out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. And into the wilderness they go. And they are overcome by temptation. Jesus is called out of Egypt. What do we then read of in Matthew 3? That he goes through the waters of baptism. And what is God's pronouncement on the Lord Jesus Christ? It is, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He overcomes where Israel has failed. You could look at the Lord Jesus presented in the temple, for example. Another seasonal verse. Uh, the infant Jesus is taken into the temple. And who do they encounter there but a man by the name of Simeon. Simeon's had this promise from the Lord. You'll see the Messiah before you die. And when he, when he sees the child, he, he, he says something. And one of the things he says is that he will be a light for the Gentiles. This was the calling that the nation of Israel was given. To be a light to the Gentiles. Something they failed to fulfill. But here the Lord Jesus is the one who overcomes where they failed. Think about the significance of the temple in the history of Israel. And hopefully that has come out in the last uh, five or six weeks when we've done this overview. It was rightly a centerpiece of their national life. It represented God's dwelling place among his people. The temple was where God's presence was. But in the incarnation, we find that another temple has now been built. John's gospel draws this theme out from the very first chapter. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we have this very famous verse. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And what I've indicated there on the slide is that literally this says... The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the the precursor to the temple, God's dwelling place among his people in the wilderness. John sees Jesus as a new tabernacle in which God has come to dwell among his people. And the Lord Jesus himself takes this theme further. You turn over to John chapter 2. Jesus cleanses the temple in jerusalem he drives out the money changers and he rebukes them and the jews are incensed that he's behaving like this and they say you know give us some sign to show us that you have the authority to behave like this and he says this destroy this temple and i will raise it again in three days the jews replied it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days but the temple he had spoken of was his body. We can say with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a new temple in town. And it's not built with bricks and mortar. There's one more thing I need to mention. And that is about the covenant. So we've looked at God's people. We've seen uh, God uh, in his son fulfilling the the, the, the lineage from, from Adam, from Abraham, from David. Uh, we have seen him overcome where they failed. We have discussed God's place, particularly in reference to, this, to the temple. And the last thing I want to mention is the covenant. An enormously important passage in the prophets. is that which looks forward to the time when God will make a new covenant with his people. Uh, and I'm going I'm to read these verses. You find them in Jeremiah chapter 31. These are very important verses, and, and we'll see, hopefully, see why in a moment. The days are coming. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming when I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What did we see time and time again as we walked our way through the history of Israel and, and saw that more than it just being a history of Israel, it is a demonstration of, of the history of the human race? We saw that the fundamental problem. Preventing man from being right with God is not man's environment. It's man's heart. We've seen as we've walked through the Old Testament that it does not matter what sort of positive environment human beings are put in. Whether it be the perfection of the Garden of Eden. Whether it be under a system of law. Whether it be under judges, under a king. Man keeps failing to attain to God. And in fact, Jeremiah elsewhere would give the diagnosis for that. He would say, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so this new covenant that's promised, not a covenant like that one given to Abraham or or to Moses or to David, it's different. It's the longed-for hope because this is a covenant that takes effect in our hearts. God's not going to give some external list of rules to be right with Him. God's going to do what's needed, and that is change your heart. A new heart will be given. And the point, of the simple point I want to make is that this is the covenant that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself says He came to to establish our last reading for the evening is taken from Luke chapter 22 where we have the Lord Jesus Christ he's in the upper room with his disciples, they're celebrating the Passover, it is the night before his crucifixion and here's what Luke records for us from verse 19 and he took bread gave thanks and broke it And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Which is poured out for you. Jesus Christ is presented to us as the only way. By which we can be right with God. Because it is only Jesus Christ who brings in this new covenant. The only kind of covenant that can make you right with God. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. That he can cleanse your heart from sin. And in fact included in these words in the upper room. Is the means by which he establishes it. It is by his blood. Which is for you. I mean, this is this is from the lips of Christ. He's saying, this is what the cross means. I am putting myself in your place. My body given for you. My blood poured out for you. This is the lens through which we understand the word of God. It is pointing us to the cross of Christ. It's pointing us to the only hope of humanity. And it's pointing us to the Savior who died there. Who shed his blood for us. It is well said, and it's worth repeating year after year, that it's very easy for us to lose sight of this in the month of December. Because we like, and it's right to like, we like the baby Jesus. And you know what? Most of, most of our society doesn't find the baby Jesus terribly offensive either. It's a reasonably comfortable image. But we cannot simply dwell on the baby Jesus and not come to this point. Otherwise we don't have the gospel. The baby Jesus has come to this end. All of the revelation in the Old Testament has been given to point us to this accomplishment. That the Lord Jesus Christ would give his body, would give his blood for you. We have reason to rejoice tonight. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, this new covenant is yours. It's a covenant which has taken effect in your heart. Respond to God in worship tonight. For all he's done. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Then all of this is kind of theoretical stuff. This is just you listening to my theory. About what the Bible says. Come and find that this is. This is no mere theory. This is God. come in flesh. To save sinners like us. And what a beautiful picture we see. As we see Christ as the fulfillment. Of all of the Old Testament. Let's just. Let's just bow over in a moment's prayer, offer our worship to God, and then we'll sing our closing song. Yes, Father, we, we want to thank you for being so gracious to us as to give us your revelation in the Holy Scriptures. And we acknowledge in your presence, our Father, that, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, of all of these words. All of these pictures, these prophecies. And Lord, all of those times where we, where we read of human failure in the Old Testament. And, and Lord, it can be so depressing for us. We thank you that now we look to Christ and we see the one who overcomes. And who does so on our behalf. What a savior we have. We want to thank you for the remembrance of him at this time of year coming in flesh. But Lord, may we always follow that journey that he traveled to the cross of Calvary. We thank you that our salvation is built on the, that the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. And we plead no other basis for being right with you, Lord. We thank you for the The work of the new covenant in our hearts, Lord, may we appreciate it more and more. May we be sensitive to it more and more. And may we grow to love more and more our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen.